Are you guys ready to hear from God's word today? It's going to be a good one. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for who you are. God, we, we know as we approach the scriptures that um, every time we open it, there's, there's things that we don't always understand. There, there's new things to see and, uh, because, God, you're just so vast and so amazing. So we confess that we need you as we approach the scripture. Uh, not one of us in this building come with a, a perfect translation of your word. and That's why we desperately need you to help us. And, God, we also ask your Holy Spirit to convince our hearts of the realities that we already have in you. Add to our faith today. We love you. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. Amen. Man, you guys are a little more lively than the first service. I had to make them say amen twice, but y'all got it the first time. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. Look at the person next to you. Just give them a little hand clap. So we started a series a couple weeks ago called Can You Hear Me Now? And in week one, Pastor was talking about the fact that God wants to speak to us, and he does. The question for us is, are we listening? And when he speaks, do we recognize his voice? Uh, In this series, we're looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation and the letters that were written to these churches to see what God has to say to them and what he has to say to us. Today, we're going to be looking at the church of Thyatira. Try to say that. Not, Not bad. Pretty good. Pretty good. I had had to say it a few times before I came up here and said it, so don't feel so bad. In context to all of these seven letters, um, we know from last week that these letters were written to actual church. These were real churches. Um, And although these letters were not written to us, they were also written for us. There's a lot we can learn from these messages that God sent to these churches and for us today. Well, let's go ahead and start reading at Revelation 2. We'll start at verse 18 and read the message to the church of Thyatira. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire and feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things. But I have this complaint against you. You're permitting that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly, unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thought and intention of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. Verse 24, but I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching. Deeper truth, as they call them, the depths of Satan, actually, these false teachings. He says, I'll ask nothing more of you except to hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. I will have the same authority, will, they will have the same authority I have received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone who hears with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Wow. Somebody say that was a lot. That was a lot. Uh, We're going to try to unpack this today. You may approach that and be like, wow, there's a lot here. I don't quite understand it. Well, let's try to understand it together. 
So the church in Thyatira, it was located 35 miles down the road from Pergamum from our message last week. Many would say that this city really has no great political importance, uh, but it did have a substantial amount of trade. Uh, there was abundant crops there. There was uh, potters, tanners, and people would make robes. Now to work in this town meant that you would join one of these unions to work. And this put believers in a really hard position because to work among one of these unions would mean to eat with them and share meals with them and feast together with them as they sacrificed to idols and engaged in drunkenness and sexual immorality together. If you were a believer trying to live set apart from this culture in this community, set apart from these worker unions, it, it often meant that you would face poverty and hardship. So for the church in Thyatira, their livelihood was at stake when they didn't participate with the community. Also, in this city, there was something was really sought out. This was like the famous thing about the city. It was famous for one thing, dye, and specifically purple dye. Thyatira and dye gives us a little bit of a clue as to how the gospel may have come to this town. You might remember the story in Acts 16. Paul met a woman named Lydia from, uh, she was a Thyatiran merchant who traded in purple clothes. And they say in scripture, it said that because of Paul's ministry, that, that Lydia, she said yes to the gospel. Let's take a look at the description of Jesus as we enter this letter, because it's really important. Every single one of these letters have a different way that Jesus is described as he approaches his church. Here, as we look at the description, we see him described as, first, the Son of God. Here he's called the Son of God rather than the Son of Man, which we see him called in many places in scriptures. Historians say regarding this city that the Son of Zeus was a very popular idol in Thyatira. So when Jesus was announced as the Son of God, it was like an announcement of clarity to the community and to the church. And it said this, it was a message saying, hey, somebody powerful is coming with a message and he's not the son of some kind of man. No, he's a message, he has a message and he is a son of the living God who is much greater than the son of Zeus. So it's a declaration to the city. Next, we see him with eyes like burning fire. His eyes actually didn't have like... You know, there wasn't like fire coming out of his eyes, but like a blaze of fire. Now, we see fire associated a lot with Jesus and the presence of God as we look throughout the Bible. The Greek word here for fire is the word pour, P-U-R. This word fire is described as an agent of purification. This reveals the Son of God coming as an agent of purification to his church this tells us that the heart of God's position to his bride is to purify the one he loves. Now, how many know that us Pentecostals or charismatic or whatever kind of label you want to give our church, how many know that we love to say the phrase, I'm on fire for Jesus? How many know that? Now, I don't really know where that phrase came from, but here as we see the Son of God with fire in his eyes, I can't help but think that he is coming on fire and in love for his church. I wonder if the fire of his, in his eyes is an indication of his jealous love. Zechariah 8.2 tells us that the Lord burns with jealousy for his bride. Now, as we look throughout scriptures, we also understand that fire is associated with judgment. Uh, 
And we think it, when we think about fire being associated with judgment, it's associated for judgment on the ones who don't have faith in Jesus. God is not in the business of burning up his bride. He loves his bride. The bottom line description about this description of Jesus as he begins to bring this letter is that he's establishing the fact that he has authority over the entire earth as he comes to bring some hard words on a person in this church. And also he's describing his authority as he comes to bring some really good news to his faithful bride. The Lord with blazing eyes have, has come to expose and lay open some things in the church, not for the sake of shame, but for the sake of purification and transformation. You know, I had to cut through about 30 pages of notes and whittle it down to 17. It probably should be 15, just a little bit warning, because there's so much to no one understand as we read through this letter. But we're gonna focus in on three things. We can't deny Jesus had some strong words for this church, and we're gonna take a look at these strong words. He had some strong words first for the unrepentant non-believer. Now, in, in verse 20 through 23, um, we notice Jezebel introduced here as an unrepentant person. Jezebel was somebody that Jesus had given her life for. He paid the price of, repent, uh, of, of, uh, paid the price of penalty for her sin, and she chose to repent not. She was unwilling. Scripture says, I gave her time to repent, but she loved her sin too much. At all indications, Jezebel was never a believer. Well, who was she and what was she up to in this church? Well, the name Jezebel, when it was written in this letter, is symbolic as a reference to the type of person that this individual was operating like in this church. This person was operating with the same spirit that the historic person Jezebel was operating in in 1 Kings chapter 16. She was one of the most evil women in the Bible, Jezebel was. She was an idol-worshiping pagan. She loved to influence and corrupt and seduce Israel and her husband, King Ahab, into sexual immorality and worshiping Baal. And when you think of Baal, think of child sacrifice, murder, and sexual immorality. And what was she up to in this church? Absolutely no good, Scripture tells us. She was trying to lead God's servants into her ways. Now, last week, we dealt with food sacrificed to idols a bit, so we're not going to deal with that today, but we're going to lean in a little bit into uh, the fornication and sexual immorality that she was leading people into. Here, sexual sin in this verse is translated to the word porn yo. How many can imagine where we get our word porn or pornography today from the English word? We get it from this word right here. This is where we get our word Porn. This word is about unlawful, unmarried, sexual intimacy with others or many others. This was done often by people prostituting themselves or giving themselves into prostitution, a way to someone sexually and also a way to people outside the boundaries of marriage. Now, when we look at this at, at a first glance, at a natural glance, there's a, a really important lesson that we see here. But there's a little bit of a deeper lesson when we look at this spiritually. How many know when we approach scripture, there's always natural things and there's always spiritual things. And Jesus was always trying to take the, the Pharisees off of their eyes, off of natural things and get them to see spiritually. Now, when we approach this scripture and we get stuck with natural imagery, we can miss the spiritual imagery. 
And when we do that, we might be tempted to graze over this church and just move on because, well, we haven't been with any prostitutes lately, have we? Here's the spiritual imagery. Jesus, the husband of the bride, the bride, his church, is cheating on her husband, Jesus. She is having sexual uh, intimacy with another spiritually. I want to use the phrase, she's committing spiritual fornication. If we can describe spiritual fornication, what would it look like? Well, it looks like a believer cheating on Jesus going back to the law. Are we married to the law of Moses or are we married to the law of Christ? Is Christ our husband or is Moses our husband? And we see this battle all throughout the New Testament of believers trying to go back to the law of works. Whether we're looking at this naturally or physically, whether you're being drawn away through sexual sin or in your heart, you are going to another one to fulfill the deepest desires of your desire for love and belonging, to fulfill that for you, you are committing a fornication. The message to this unrepentant person and those in the church that were unrepentant was this. I have called you to repentance. I have offered my love and you repent not. This made the heart of Jesus sad. He paid a great price for these people that he loved. What is the fate for this unbeliever, Jezebel, and others who repent not and choose not Jesus for their salvation? Well, the fate here we see is Jezebel's fate was to deal with her bed of suffering from sin on her own, separated from God. How many of you know how that goes? No help from God, separated to deal with sin on your own. She will now reap the full consequences of her sin on earth and in eternity, and she will surely die and spend eternity separated from God. That is not God's heart for any person. What is the fate of her children? Now, this gets like a little crazy because you get into here and scripture says, I will strike her children dead. Now, remember, it's, it's very important. Don't get stuck at natural imagery. Let's take a look at spiritually perhaps what this might mean. Well, first of all, will God literally kill her kids? This is a message to that church and for us today. Will God literally kill your kids because you repented not? Is the author of life and the one who dispenses life and light and love and healing gonna now dispense murder on her? First, it's so important for us to understand as we approach scripture how to divide the word of truth correctly. There's a spiritual undertone here that is very powerful. First of all, for you who need a natural undertone, here is one. Deuteronomy 24, 16 says this, even the law forbids putting children to death for the sins of their parents. There's no way Jesus is a lawbreaker. He is a law fulfiller. So don't let that phrase scare you. Truth be told, if Jesus went out killing every child for the sins of their parents, there would not be very many people left here on earth. (laughs) 
If we see this spiritually, here's the guarantee. Here's the good news in this for the church today. The guarantee is this, that future generations of the church of Thyatira and this church here, future generations will not have to deal with the rebellion and corruption of Jezebel's children and her children's children. They will have no influence to operate in the church. They will be cut off and struck dead. You don't have to fear the kids growing up and coming after you. Jesus had some strong words for the unrepentant. He also had some strong words for what I'm gonna call the unrenewed believers. Now, I had to work really hard to get the word unrenewed. I still really don't like it. I'm not 100% sure if it makes sense, but hang with me, it'll make sense. And I had to keep with the pattern of unbeliever, unrenewed, you know, so. Let's talk about what it means to be renewed. First of all, renewal and refreshing comes when we spend time abiding in Christ with Jesus. We do that a lot of ways. You're here right now, hearing the word. You're experiencing the life of Christ. We do that during worship and when we open the Bible and we pray and, and we do that when we're silent before the Lord and, and, and you do what you do with, to connect with Jesus. That's what it means to be refreshed and abide in Christ. But when we don't do that and we are unrenewed, we become very spiritually unaware and even stuck in our faith. And that's what happened to this group of people that Jesus was addressing. Jesus says to this group, he says, I know all the things you do and I know that you're constantly improving in these things. This church in Thyatira was a very busy church. They had really good church services. They probably had a great worship team, although we probably would have thought that hearing how, how wonderful the sound is now that it was terrible. But at the time, it was probably really good. <laughs> they had great outreaches. They had great programs in their church. They had a lot of stuff going on. Yet it's interesting to note that Jesus had something against this busy church. What did he have against them? Verse 20, he says, you're permitting Jezebel to have influence among you. This church was focused on doing rather than being. And their doing was wearing them out. They were not refreshed in the things of God. They were absolutely unaware. And because they were so focused on their doing rather than their being with Christ, they let Jezebel operate among them. And no doubt she had a flirting game like nobody's business, baby. She was alluring people. And I am sure there were people who were operating under her influence. It appears that Jesus' concern with his people was that they were overworking and under-abiding. Have you ever been there before? How we just, we, we were too busy not abiding in Christ, not being reminded of who he is, not being reminded of who we are. How do we know if we fall under that category of overworking and underabiding, what does it look like for a church that is overworking and underabiding? Well, first of all, they're just way too busy, right? That's like an easy one, too busy. Too busy to sit in silence, too busy to pray, too busy to read our word. You've been there? I'm there all the time. I, I'm like, okay, I'm carving out time because I know my nature, I know me. I'm gonna find myself too busy. I gotta carve out time and make it a priority. Too busy to notice false teaching and when the, your loved ones around you are going too far, it might look like that. Perhaps this church was too busy working for love rather than from love. Perhaps they were stuck working for the approval of their father that can never be given to them by enough works but can only be given to them by abiding in Christ. 
Perhaps they were working so hard to get God's attention, not realizing that they already had the father's attention. He is their bride. I mean, does any good husband ignore their wife when they're in the house? Hello? The father was saying to this church, start believing what I have already accomplished for you. Start believing that I already love you. You are already approved of me. And stop trying to work hard and use your faith to get, you, to get me to give you things that you already have. How did Jezebel and her false teaching get in the church? Well, I submit to you today that with a church and a people too busy to notice, she walked right through the front door. And mom, dad, I'm, I'm included in this. Sean, Krista, students, young person. Are you too busy to abide? And who's slipping through the front door of your life? Are there things that you are tolerating right now in your life that you used to not tolerate? Tolerate. God hasn't gone anywhere. The husband hasn't left the room, but you've been desensitized. You quit abiding. You quit. You, you forgot about the good news. And you've busied yourself to the point that you are absolutely spiritually unaware. His message was to this church and to every renewed, unrenewed believer is this, continue in your faith. Stop working for my attention and repent. Repent means to change your mind. Change your mind about how good, you, how good I am to you. Change your mind about how good you think sin is for you. And he says, start believing you are loved and accepted and start working from love and participate with me in my kingdom. What was his warning for this church, for those who, specifically for those who were unwilling to repent? What was the warning? The warning is this, verse 22, it said, you will suffer greatly. Now, regardless, sometimes as believers, we get so focused on, is that sin going to send me to hell or not? Stop playing that game. That's just like playing with the law. Oh, I'm going to get so close to this line before I say, just forget about that. Understand this about sin. Regardless of how big or small you think the sin is, the point is Jesus does not want you to suffer the consequences of your sin. And there are a lot of natural consequences of sin when we participate in dead works and sinful works. I got to tell you, I've had my fair share. And he says this, he says, you will suffer greatly and I will give you what you deserve. And I'm gonna take a minute to kind of unpack this scripture and this little phrase, what this means. When we refuse to repent as believers, we suffer the daily consequences of our own sin. Here's what I like to say about this is that sin, uh, this is self-inflicted tribulation. We can't sit around and say, God is punishing me. He's not punishing you. You are self-inflicting a tribulation upon yourself because of the bad choices that you make. I have felt them. Have you? And we sit and blame God and God is like, no, you're just suffering the consequences of your own sin. I like to say it like this, that 
When we get saved, we have vertical righteousness. That's why God looks at you and says, you're my, my perfect bride. That's the only way we can be a perfect bride because of vertical righteousness. Our spirit is in perfect right standing with God. Here on earth, we talk a lot about working out our salvation, work out what God has put in us, all the good stuff, and work it out into our reality. And in the midst of that, it's called the process of sanctification. That's what we call that. And in the midst of that, we still sin and we still fall short and we still do things that hurt people. And how many you know, we deal with a lot of natural relational consequences when we hurt people. God still loves us. He, we are still his child, but we are reaping the consequences of our terrible decisions horizontally in our relationships. And how we relate in this world horizontally determines how much self-inflicted tribulation you're going to experience. This is a warning to the unrepentant believer and the one who's about to put down their faith in Christ for salvation. This is the warning for that person. Now, some questions that popped up in my brain is, is God getting ready to punish his bride right here? Is he, is he gonna give her whatever she deserves? What exactly does that mean? Some might say, absolutely, yes. I have a really hard time believing that when I read all of the scriptures. We gotta keep scripture in context with the entire counsel of the word of God. I have a hard time believing that the Jesus who took all of the punishment for my sin on the cross and drank all of the wrath of God in the cup. I have a really hard time that he took all that punishment on himself for me. He took my place. That's what we preach as the gospel. He took my place, yet he's gonna turn around and punish me. No. <laughs> Remember John 3, 16, 16, 8, 17, 18, and 19. Our staff was just digging through that a few weeks ago. Scripture says that Jesus did not come to condemn and it specifically says, sin already condemns you. It accuses you. It punishes you. The fruit of sin is death. And God does not want to tolerate death for his bride. He loves her too much. He's too jealous for you to see you suffer. He says, I'm going to give each one of you what you deserve. Who is the each one of you here? Well, this is a strong call to some people who needed to repent and some people who are in danger of letting go of their faith and walking away so that each one of them, the one who needed to repent and the one who's about ready to walk to their faith, he's gonna give to each one of them a different thing that they deserve. What do they deserve? What do they deserve? John 6 and 28. We get paid for our work. We know that, right? And, th and that's part of what salvation is. Every time we give the salvation altar call, we always say we get paid for our work and we get paid for sin by, paying, by, by death, right? And Jesus took our death on for us. Well, the Pharisees were having a hard time understanding this dynamic and it was a new dynamic being introduced to them and they were used to working so hard for God's approval and they were also used to working so hard for God's forgiveness. So they come to Jesus trying to trap him and the crowds in John 6 and 28, it says the crowds ask Jesus, what must, me, what must we do to do the works God requires? Works, plural, multiple works. I, I, I'm, and we can't get mad at them. That was the system. They were, they were under the law. That's what was required at that time. And Jesus comes to them and, he's, and, he, and he changes everything. He says, the work of God is this. Notice he didn't say works. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. 
So Jesus was saying to this group of people, I'm going to give you what you deserve based off of your work. If our work is belief in Jesus, then our payment is the abundant life in Christ. If our work is denial of Jesus, then our payment is death and separation from God. Now, how does the jealous son of God with fire in his eyes deal with this stumbling block Jezebel who was getting caught up messing with his bride, the one he loves? We see in scripture here that he, he doesn't ask the church to rebuke her. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't ask the church to shame her. He doesn't tell them to go have a deliverance service. And remember, the gifts of the Holy Spirit had already been unleashed at this time. He handles business for his bride. Apparently, she just couldn't do it on her own. And there's just gonna be some times where you just can't do it on your own. And your husband, the father, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords is gonna come in with fiery eyes, on love, passion for you, jealous for you. And he's gonna come in and he's gonna handle business for you. And when he does, when he handles business for you, it's like him stepping in saying, that's my bride. And I'm not gonna tolerate that influence in her life. I'm not gonna let you walking around thinking you are less than you are. I'm not gonna let you walk around thinking that your husband has not provided everything for you. In fact, he's provided all that you need. Notice that the husband, Jesus, he doesn't come in as an abusive husband to his bride. He doesn't come and beat his bride. He doesn't come and shame her into submission. And he doesn't kick her out. No, he loves her. And he reminds her who she is and who he is. And he tells her, you're my bride. I've committed my love for you. I've given my life for you. And I am jealous and I'm on fire for you. And I will do whatever it takes to keep you mine. Before we get into the last point, we have a baptism today. Uh, so if you're getting baptized, you can go ahead and, and uh, meet Amanda over here in the back. And by the way, if you've never been baptized before and you want to get baptized, uh, go ahead and uh, meet them in the back as well. We can give you some instructions. We got clothes for you. And uh, only do it if you're ready and you know what baptism is all about. We want it to be special for you. All right. Now this is the last point and the shortest point. All right. All right. I got a lot of chuck, chuckles and laughs in the, in the last, last service when I said it was the shortest point. I'm not sure why they were laughing at me, but Jesus had some strong words for this church. He had some strong words for the unrepentant. He had some strong words for the unrenewed. And he had some strong words for the unfailing believer. He says this, he says, to the rest of you, to the ones who have not followed Jesse's teaching and you have kept your faith firm in me, he says, I place no other burden on you but to hold tight to your faith. Bride, I want you to know something. Some of you are just so busy trying to work for God's approval. And he says, I put no other burden on you. In fact, I lift burdens off of you. Walking with me is free and light. Just abide with me. He was saying, to those of you who had continued in your faith, I got strong words for you, loved ones. Just focus on abiding in me. 
Everything will flow from that. You want better works? Abide in me. You want to love better? Abide in me. You want to care better? Abide in me. You want to be a better husband? Abide in me. You want to be a better mother or father? Abide in me. You want more influence? Just abide in me and see the influence that you already have. It will change everything for you. And I think he probably would have told these loved ones, don't slip back like some are doing. Don't slip back into sin looking for approval, looking for love and fulfillment like others have. Know that I have everything you need. And please don't slip back to old covenant works-based slave mentality thinking, trying to buy my approval and love because I have already given it to you. Stop looking for it. It's right here. I am your husband. I have not gone anywhere. And to these people, he looks at these people and he says, to all of you who are victorious. Last week we talked about this word victorious. The only way you enter into the victorious life is by confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So if you have done that and you keep it till the end, he looks at you and he says, to my victorious ones, I have good news for you. I call you victorious. And what is the fate for his victorious ones? Here's the fate for the victorious ones. Scripture says this. He says, I will rule over the nations with an iron rod and smash them like, clot, like pays of cots. And they will rule with me, the victorious one. They will have the same authority I receive from my father. And I also give them the morning star. You know, the morning star, victorious one. You can't be a victorious one without the morning star. The morning star is Christ himself. Jesus says, join me in ruling over the nations. Is he gonna go like slice people and cut people up and and smash them? No, he says, join with me. Let's look spiritually at this. Join with me and we together will not let the influences of the idol worship of the world influence my bride. We will not let the world sneak back into the church. In fact, we will crush her clay pots, crush her vessels of influence, crush her vessels of word so that they would be destroyed so that they won't touch my bride any longer. That's good news for you and I, believer. I don't know about you, but that makes me happy. Our takeaway for today is this. Well, actually, his message for the, sorry, uh, PowerPoint people, his message to the unfailing believer is this, rule with me, work with me. We, he's not gonna be like, go get him. He never makes you do anything on your own. We will bring heaven to earth for our Father's glory. What a powerful calling for the bride. The takeaway for today is Jesus is on fire for his church and he will purify her for his name's sake. Oh, he wants to do it for you. But he's gonna purify you for his name's sake so that the world will see how good he is at from turning sinners to saints. And then he says, here is invite to repent. Here is invite to repent. 